And if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49, the end of the book of Genesis, you can find it on page 50 and 51 of your pew Bible, Genesis 49, where we will pick up at verse 28 at the end of the chapter, page 51 of your pew Bible. We are coming to the end of a study on the life of the patriarchs or fathers. The Bible can be broken down. I hope this helps you. The Bible can be broken down into three, three big eras or ages of time. The first is the time of the patriarchs, which lasted for several thousand years. It runs from Adam to Joseph and included men like Noah, Job, Melchizedek, and others. These men and women of faith have no centralized temple or nation. They had no Bible. They walked by faith in God, believing his promises as they were handed down largely by word of mouth from their fathers. When Joseph dies, and we'll see that next time, this great age, the age of the patriarchs, comes to an end. Moses arrives several hundred years later, and a nation is born. God's work in the world takes a very particular and intense shape. A central temple is constructed. A capital city is set up. A line of kings, David and his sons, are given eternal significance. This is the second age of the Bible. It ends with the captivity and the partial return of Israel under men like Nehemiah. The nation, the nation of Israel, on one level, as the Old Testament comes to a close, has failed, failed to bring God's salvation to the world. And yet the prophets promise a coming new age, a third age, where the nations will come to God through the Messiah. That final age, the third age is, of course, the one we live in now. It's called the New Testament era. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the faith of Abraham goes throughout the whole world. And we live in hope of one final age, an endless age, a consummate age, when heaven and earth will merge and there will be no more death. Like the time of the patriarchs, we have no central temple and Christianity has no one nation. But like the time of Israel, the second age, we do have a perfect high priest in heaven. We have a Davidic king ruling over us. And like Israel, we have the writings of the prophets and apostles to guide us and our families. Now, what does all this have to do with our passage today? Today, we will look at the last moments of Jacob's life, his death and his funeral. Jacob's death is the beginning of the end of the time of the fathers. We can almost see the nation of Israel taking shape around Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob has wrestled hard with life and with God, and yet there's a great blessing coming through him. He has been renamed Israel, and this will be the name of God's chosen people. His death will usher in a nation. With that context, let me invite you to stand as we do each week for the reading of God's word. We'll begin in Genesis 49, verse 28, and go through Jacob's death and funeral. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. 
Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abram, Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Ebel Mizarim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abram brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you and praise you that we enjoy every week this opportunity to study your word. We pray now that you would use this for our good, that you would convict us of sin, encourage us in suffering, that you would correct wrong thinking and help us in every way as we study your word. Above all, Father, we pray that as we look into your word, we would see your son, who is the purpose the master plan and all of it. Reveal him to us by faith, we pray this day. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On Wednesday nights, 
Uh, currently, I'm serving, some of you know this, at Rowan University, doing uh, RUF there. And, of course, back here in Mount Laurel, Pastor Trefskar is leading a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And some of you may know that you're going through the book of Ecclesiastes together, I believe, right now on Wednesday evening. Ecclesiastes, you might know this, is a wisdom book. Like Proverbs, it's designed to give a wise and truthful outlook on life, especially life under the sun, life in a fallen world. And in chapter 7, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, this advice or counsel or wisdom is given. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this, that is the feast of mourning, is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Now, I don't think the Bible here is encouraging us to be morbid. What it's saying simply is that death provides a critical perspective, a wise perspective on life. A wise man or woman realizes that death is coming and thinks soberly about what kind of life and legacy they will leave behind. In my time here as pastor, I have talked with several people about their deaths. Several members have even written out their funerals or their wishes for their funeral. Now, to some of us, that might sound rather dark, rather depressing. But what fascinates me is that these members of our church have also been some of the most active, both in the church and in their community. They've considered death not as a way to avoid life, but as a way to re-engage life with purpose. I think this is a perspective that we all need. We shouldn't be obsessed with death or terrorized by it. But regardless of our age, we should ask ourselves, how do I want to die what do I want to leave behind to others? What will my funeral and my last days mean for those I will leave behind? Simply put, as Christians, we should long for a good death, a good death to die at peace with others, with our conscience clear and with some lasting impact upon those who we leave behind. Jacob and Joseph are wonderful models of what it means for a believer to die well. They use their dying days to communicate faith to their family, and then they leave lasting legacies behind, which are designed to direct their children to God and his promises. And yet they are both utterly eclipsed by our Lord Jesus Christ whose death and burial are constantly before millions of believers every day. Today, we will focus on Jacob's last days, his death and his burial or funeral. The death of Jacob is really broken down to us, and you can even see this in your ESV. It's clearly marked there in the Pew Bible in two sections. First, in verses 28 through 33, the end of chapter 49, we have a summary of how Jacob spent the last days of his earthly life. These verses give us a window into a dying man's faith, his hopes, his priorities. Some people die suddenly and are not able to plan their last days, but Jacob apparently had enough strength at the end to think through what was happening and respond. 
Clearly, he planned these moments. Thought and pray and prayer had gone into what would happen and how he would spend the last of his strength. And so he spends his last strength blessing and commanding his sons. And then in chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, secondly, we have the record of Jacob's elaborate funeral. It was a massive event that would have taken months to complete. It involved a holy pilgrimage back to the promised land. It would have touched the lives of hundreds of people, including soldiers and Egyptian dignitaries. It is a truly amazing ending to the life of someone who started out with nothing. A young man, remember, who fell asleep on a rock when God first appeared to him. What does Jacob's funeral tell us about his faith and the faith of his sons? But first, let's look together at Jacob's last days as they're recorded for us here in verses 28 through 33. Notice how Jacob spent his last strength. He does two things in these verses. He blesses his sons, we're told, and he commands his sons. And both actions are deeply meaningful to him and to those he left behind. So first, notice that he spent his last days blessing his children. Look with me at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 sons. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Last time we looked in more detail at these blessings. We won't go over all of them again today. However, I do want us to step back and notice that Jacob's last act as a father was to pass on the covenant blessing to his children. Now, I know we pastors, we like to throw around the word covenant quite frequently, but don't let that disguise its importance, its weight. These were not ordinary blessings. Jacob was not simply wishing them well. He wasn't just saying, I hope everything works out for you. I hope you have a good life. No, this was a religious act, a moment with profound implications. As the history of Scripture unfolds, these blessings will guide the destiny of the nation and the fate of the world. In blessing his sons, Jacob is reminding them that they are the heirs to the promises of God made to Abraham and Isaac. If you've been with us in our study of Genesis, you might remember that blessing is arguably the key word to the whole of the book of Genesis, appearing more than 80 times in just this one volume. Blessing, of course, is what Adam and Eve lost when the curse of sin entered the world. Blessing is the word used by God when he reconstitutes humanity around Noah. Blessing is the word used again and again as promises of covenant love are made to Abraham and to Isaac. In fact, the word blessing is used no less than five times by God. When he calls Abraham, he says this, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 
The Bible itself at the macro level, at the big picture level, is the story of how blessing is lost through our sin, promised to us again by a gracious covenant, and then decisively and eternally guaranteed to God's people through the death of God's perfect son, the spotless lamb. That's what is at stake here. And so this is where Jacob wisely has decided to spend his last strength. Jacob in his final days is blessing his sons. And as he does so, the covenant of promise, the hope of the entire world is moving from Jacob to these 12 men. Brothers and sisters, can there be any better way to spend your last days, your last moments, and all the ones in between now and then, than being engulfed in the vision of what God will do after you are gone? Jacob, you see, is not clinging white knuckle to his herds or his fields or his elevated status in Egypt. As we'll see in a moment, Jacob had become a bit of a celebrity, actually, in the land of Egypt. But that is not what captures his imagination. Rather, in dying, he is captured by the covenant and the blessings of the covenant. Even as he lays dying, Jacob is completely alive to the promises of God. May that be the case of each of us. That as earth's vain shadows flee, the promises of God's covenant only brighten. Now, if you understand this, how his heart was captured, not by regret, not by wanting just a few more days, but by God's promises. If you get that, then you can understand what he does next. Look at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. Now, remember, as you're reading this, that when Jacob is commanding here, what he's commanding here is no easy task. It involved enormous preparation, government approval and a lot of money and time. And that is why back in chapter 47, Jacob has already taken Joseph aside and made him take an oath to bury him in the promised land. Here in our text today, that command is now given officially to all the sons because this was no small request. This was Jacob's dying wish. But why was Jacob asking his sons to go to such elaborate lengths to bury him? Before I answer that, let's rule out what is not happening here. Notice that this request was not fueled by superstition or by fear. Jacob did not believe that his spirit would be restless if it wasn't placed in the right grave, in the family grave. This is not an old man full of superstition and nostalgia forcing his sons to do something elaborate and unnecessary. Jacob is quite clear, rather, in his belief about his future. Notice what he says. Jacob says in verse 29, I'm going to die and I will be gathered to my people. At the time of his death, at the moment of his death, Jacob knows that he will be immediately brought into the presence of Abraham and Isaac. 
And so look at how the section ends in verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. And what? He breathed his last and was gathered immediately to his people. Months later, several months later, he will be buried in the family grave. But Jacob understands that being gathered to his people is not some superstitious thing that happens when your bodies are in the same tomb. Jacob may not have had the clarity we have today through the New Testament on the issues of the resurrection, but he does know about life after death. So this command, which he has gone to such great lengths to enforce on his sons, is not driven by fear or superstition. He knows where he is going. So what is driving it? Why all this expense, danger, and work? Well, simply put, it is an expression, his dying expression, of his faith. Jacob still believes isn't that amazing? He still believes that despite all appearances, God will give this land to his children. And so Jacob wants to be buried there in the one little plot of ground that the Jews can call their own. In fact, to this day, literally to this day, Jews will say that this is one of the only one of only two places on planet Earth that no one can question their right to own, that it belongs to them, and Jacob wants to be there. In fact, you might have noticed as we read it, Jacob almost sounds a little bit like a lawyer in these verses, as he again and again notes the original owner, Ephron, the Hittite, the location, and the exact arrangements that have been made. And then he reminds his, his sons of the acquisition of the field and its history as a burial ground. Jacob, in faith, this is the key, in faith, he treasures this little spot in the promised land. It is the first fruits of their heritage. It's a symbol of what God will give them. And he is tenacious in his desire to be buried there and to hold on to the deed for that plot of land. Jacob knows that what's at stake here is nothing less than a key promise of the Abrahamic covenant in blessing Abraham and restoring the blessings lost by Adam, our first father, God had promised to give Abraham a new Eden, a new holy land for his people to dwell in. The old Testament in the Hebrew language uses the precise language of Eden to describe the promised land. So the land of Israel for the Israelites is not some sort of optional provision. It is critical to God's promises. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jacob understood that Israel, the land, was in actuality a picture and symbol of a greater land, a final home, an eternal city made by God. But the symbol still mattered. The land mattered. And that is why he is commanding his sons. And did you know, did you know that that is still true for us as well? Jesus promised that the meek shall inherit the earth, even though that's not what we see today. We are told that we will reign with Christ, having real bodies on a real land. John, in the book of Revelation, gives us the clearest view on what will happen. Right now, heaven and earth 
are two realities separated by a veil, two dimensions in which God reigns and acts in different ways. At the end of time, says John, the veil is taken away and the two realms become one new flawless reality. The promise to us is that we will live with Christ in this new world, in this promised land, a world without sin or tears. When we as Christians are buried in the land today, we are buried as Jacob was in our future inheritance, in our promised land. We claim this land for the Messiah Jesus and for the people of God. We entrust our bones to the ground in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We don't burn our bodies as the pagans of old did. We plant our bodies as one does a seed, as one does a hope. Here's how the book of Hebrews puts it. Speaking of the fathers, the writer says, for people who speak thus, make it clear, people who talk like Jacob, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These were the last days and hours of Jacob's life. After he was gathered to his people at the end of 49, in verses now 1 through 14, we have the record of his remarkable funeral. It begins in verse 1, as funerals often do, and there's nothing wrong with this, with weeping. Verse 1 says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. In ancient culture, one person could be chosen to close the eyes of the dearly departed, and that's what Joseph fills here, that role. It doesn't mean the other sons didn't weep. Undoubtedly, everyone wept. But it fell to Joseph to fall upon his father, to close his eyes and perform this important duty. Then in verse 2, Joseph has Jacob, his father, embalmed. The Egyptians, you probably know this more than any other culture in the world, were very interested in death and in bodily preservation. And it's a wonderful providence that God has Jacob there because you could not have taken Jacob's body on a month-long trip to Palestine without embalming. But he's, he's in the perfect place at the perfect time, isn't he? The pyramids and the mummies, which we associate with Egypt today, are the lasting emblems and artifacts of their focus on death and on life afterwards. Joseph himself had married a priest's daughter, so he undoubtedly had the connections to get this done. And God's providence embalming will enable Joseph to take the body to Canaan. Without embalming, Jacob's request would have been impossible. In verse 3, we're told that this embalming took 40 days, and that during and after this, there was a national 70 days of mourning for Jacob. In Egyptian culture, we've uncovered these records when a pharaoh died, there was 72 days of mourning for a pharaoh. So this is a stunning act of respect by the Egyptians for Jacob. Just two days shy of being a kingly funeral. Stunningly, God has taken a man who was on the run from his twin brother and had nothing. And in the course of his life, moved him to a point 
where the greatest civilization on earth is giving him a state burial. There's a little tension in verses 4 through 6. Joseph has to receive permission now from Pharaoh to go up to return to the promised land. The language here is very suggestive. As the book of Exodus begins, the people of Israel under Moses, remember, ask permission to go up and worship God. Same language. But that Pharaoh will not let God's people go, not even to travel for worship. So begins the crisis that ends with the plagues and Israel's great redemption. But for now, this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh is willing to allow Joseph to go up and he even sends dignitaries with him. In verse 7 and following, Joseph and his brothers, Egyptian dignitaries and chariots, make their way north to the promised land. As they draw near to the burial spot, they stop for a final seven days of mourning. The horde of people, there's so many people with Joseph that it's noticeable to the locals. And you'll notice in verse 11 that they rename the spot Abel Mizraim. Mizraim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. So it is the mourning of the Egyptians. Having obeyed their father, the sons place him in the cave with Abraham and Isaac and return to Egypt to their wives, children and herds. Now think for a moment about what Jacob just did for his sons. You know, our focus tends to be initially on what the sons did, a month of travel or more, all the expense. But think what Jacob did for his sons by commanding them to do this. On the surface, we might be, able, might be tempted to say, that's a lot of expense. That's a lot of trouble for your funeral. And yes, usually I would agree. Uh, my dad used to famously say, if I go, just glad bag me and bury me in the backyard, save the money. And I think most of us probably have that mentality, don't we? We don't want to burden those left behind with elaborate funerals. But this is a really unique case. Jacob is doing something truly wonderful for his sons. The whole, this whole trip, this whole month-long probably trip, will be the last time they will ever see the promised land Again, Jacob's funeral will burn into their minds the importance of this land. They will never really be able to simply become Egyptians with their fathers buried in Canaan. Their hearts, their thoughts will always be drawn back to that land. Jacob is telling his sons not to get comfortable in Egypt, not to give up on the promises of God. He is saying to them, Goshen is nice. I love Joseph in this new land, but don't put your roots down here. God is taking us somewhere else. Never forget. And how could they? They could never forget that journey. The coffin of Jacob going before them, the final resting place. His funeral drew their hearts forever back to a better land and a better promise. I would never seek to dictate to you how you should be buried or in what lot. But here is what makes a funeral great. It leaves a lasting impression on those who attend. It forever points them to a new promised land. Jacob was, as it were, planting a flag in that land for all of his descendants. However good we may have it here, brothers and sisters, may our hearts always wander to that place where our loved ones sit with Christ, to a better land. 
we can never be satisfied with Goshen. Well, we've seen how Jacob died, spent his last days. He brought down blessings on his son. He planned his burial in a way that was designed to express his faith and to plant his faith in the lives, memories, and hearts of his sons. Jacob has come a long way, hasn't he, by the grace of God. When he was young, remember, he slept on a rock at Bethel. God appeared to him. Remember, there was that temple and angels going up and down the stairs. And you might recall after this vision, Jacob said to God, he actually said this, if you do all these things for me, then you'll be my God. As if offering God a sort of a trial period. I wonder if God laughed that day. If God thought to himself, Jacob, you have no idea, no concept of what I will do for you. Jacob's life is one of transformation, as is our own. It's the history of God taking that tricky young man and making him into a great nation, a nation of faith. Now, here at the end, we see it. He has become, by God's grace, a true man of faith. Not that long ago, just a few chapters back, Jacob had said to his sons, this was before he knew about Joseph, he had said to his sons, everything has gone wrong for me in life. But in the end, Jacob sees the nation of Israel take shape before him. His eyes are closed by his beloved son, Joseph. His family is secure in a new and prosperous land. And he believes, he believes that God will receive him into glory and that God will still keep all his promises. Many years later, many, many years later, in the early morning, a few women, Jacob's great, great granddaughters, would make their way to another cave, another burial chamber. They were bringing spices for his body they could not afford to embalm Jesus, their master, but they could perform, perfume the body. Like Jacob's sons, it was a procession, a procession they would never forget. They expected to mourn, but their mourning was turned to joy, to wonder and to fear. I wonder, do you think those women were afraid when they lay dying years later? What do you think Mary Magdalene thought as she was dying. I cannot help believe that she would have had incredible joy because indelibly pressed into her mind was the image of the empty tomb that day. It was the empty grave that captured her more vividly than the 12 sons who buried Jacob in the Holy Land. And ever since then, we've been a people who remember death Every day we think about death, the death of God's son. We think about his burial. And above all, we think of that empty grave. And that grave calls out to us, doesn't it? It calls out to us more powerfully than Machpelah could ever call to Jacob's children. Jesus' empty tomb is meant to direct our hearts unforgettably to a promise Egypt will never be our home. We are drawn away. A light shines from a half-opened door. And so we can say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Father, we're grateful for the way in which you use Jacob's grave to draw Jacob's children to faith and promises. But we are far more grateful for an empty tomb that stands before each one of us this morning and is the hope of eternal life. To draw us to that grave that we might live and die in courage and confidence to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name.